So I'm known much more for rent to rent, especially service accommodation in the UK. But I actually started that in Dubai because after that experience, I was a, I was really put off buying anymore. And so I went ahead and got my first subleasing uh, property okay. there. So what we would call as rent to rent here? Yeah. Although I went to open different businesses, so I, so I invested in a food and beverage um, a company and a uh, beauty salon right. and stuff. And, my, and I learned so much, yeah. But ultimately, um, because of some personal issues, and I'm okay to talk about that, I had a few miscarriages after I got married in 2016. Leslie, somebody with a legal background that's built a multi-million pound portfolio, young kids, spent 10 years in Dubai as well. How's that all happened? Over time. Okay. <laughs> so it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. Uh, but if I can build a property empire and have uh, good cash flow businesses, then I'm sure everybody can at least try if they want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. That's what I love about you. Very busy person, got multiple businesses, young kids to look after as well. You know, legal background in terms of busy career. You've had those up, yet you've still managed to build things are quite substantial. I think I have a fire in my belly and I actually, I had to think about this psychologically of what keeps me ticking apart from my family, but why why do I have that fire? So my my nan, when I was, um, when my brother was born, he was younger than me, told my mum that she had, um, uh, she'd given birth to us the wrong way around. Okay. Yeah, because uh, she, she said that, because in her sort of generation, so my nan's not with us anymore, unfortunately, okay. but she, um, she passed in her 90s, wow. yeah, so she lived for quite a while. But so she she saw a lot. She went through, obviously, the world wars and lived in different countries as well. Yeah, but for her, when she was growing up, which was in China, before it turned into a communist China, yeah. um, she wasn't allowed to get an education. Yeah, so in, in our culture, especially back then, it was like the boys were more sort of yeah. um, valuable in some ways yeah. or they had a they, different they role. They want to add more value to the family. Um, yeah, I, I get that. You see that in many other cultures as well we've seen in the past. Yeah, so she came from the background where my great-great, well, great-great-great-grandfather, sorry, her dad, yeah, yeah. Um, we used to be a big landowner Okay. Yeah, in a province in China. Obviously, that all got taken away, yeah. but she had um, the opportunity to get private education, but they would have let her because it was a cultural and generational thing, yeah. I think. Yeah. So when I was. How did you break the mold? Because of what she said, I think. Okay. Yeah. So I think that still drives me today because I, it's like, oh, because you're a woman, you can't do that. And I've always, I don't know why, it's just always been in the back of my mind. Like, why can't I do that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll give it a go and give it my best shot. But what's missing, apart from fact, genetically or, um, or or society has a different sort of, you know, function for me. Yeah, so that was that was interesting. I think that because of that, I've always wanted to do the best that I could at something. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't mean that I've always been successful, uh, but I, with that sort of spirit and my, the family foundation that we've got at home, I've always been able to bounce back. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first get involved in property then? So it wasn't, um, I grew up with it. Okay. So it's been in our family because of my dad. Yeah, he was, um, should I start with his story? Because that's yeah. quite inspiring. And then, but I didn't get involved until I was in my late 20s. Yeah. But my dad um, came over from Taiwan okay. to the UK and he used to work. Um, he, he used to be a professional basketballer in Taiwan. Hence, I'm quite tall. Wow. Yeah. 
And uh, but when he came over here, so he had a lot of popularity. I think he attended uni there without having to actually go to any classes. Um, and he was a networker. So he, yeah. yeah. But when he came over here, things are very different. Okay. So he's not tall enough here to make it professionally. Fine. And he also found out that he couldn't actually feed himself with the skill set. So he started from scratch. So he was doing the, he decided that education wasn't for him because initially he came over to learn English. Right. Yeah. So he started in Chinatown and he was basically washing the, the all the dishes okay, yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah. So he started from there, okay. but he had that fire in his belly. So I think it's that competitive spirit that we have in our family, I would say. Yeah. And he worked his way up to become a head chef quite okay. fast. I think it was within two or three years he did yeah. that. Um, and then started his own business and then got into property as a result. Right. Yeah. And I remember asking my dad this question. So, cause he, he kept, always looked at auction properties. So we always had some sort of brochures lying around the house. I was like, so dad, how do you actually afford these properties? Yeah. And he, I remember he used, to, he used to tell me that we have, um, our business, which was a Chinese restaurant in yeah. Cambridge then. So he said that that is the cash cow, but your biggest <laughs> partner is always the bank. Right. Yeah. Because they will look at your business and yeah. see the history and your your repayment history as well mm. um, to lend you money. But but I think borrowing money back in the nineties was was rather different, different yeah. to now because he could literally have a conversation with his the bank manager could yeah. and talk to them. Yeah, and his English is not very good and still is not very good. So if Dad could do it, yeah. now we've had the education <laughs> when it comes to my generation and all the tools. Why can we not do it right? So um, I started my property journey when I was back in Dubai. So this is the bit of, of conflict and maybe uh, second generation or third generation uh, people, uh, people that are not from England originally might have gone or are going through the same thing. So your parents have provided you with the education or the country has um, with, with a, a great education. But, the, but what do you do with it, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I went down the legal route um, and I did all of the studies. I got, I did my degree. I got a master's, went for law school. Then I went to Dubai and I worked there. Uh, but what, uh, why did I get into property? Yeah. Because I think at that point, I just couldn't see a future for me in okay. a big, it was a very big law firm. Right. I was working for a lovely, a really good team, um, in litigation. And I had a really, I was working directly for the managing partner. He was lovely. Okay. He was a multi-millionaire. So he, um, but to be able to get to that position, you've got to sacrifice a lot. Mm. It's timing because your time has to be made into billable time. Yeah. Yep. If you wanted to climb up the corporate ladder, I just couldn't see myself doing that. Yeah. I wasn't, maybe I wasn't hungry enough for it. Yeah. 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 But I always wanted at some point to start a family. Um, and I think most career people actually might delay that because of, they want to sort their career out yeah. first. So I saw so, a lot of people... Is that, so struggling with that balance of, uh, yeah. did they start a family or did they wait and build their way themselves up a corporate ladder? Yeah. And obviously you've got to meet the right partner as well. So I didn't meet my current partner until I actually nearly, before I turned 30, literally. Okay. But um, so I started my journey in Dubai in 2011. Okay. I think I had a bit of a review on life and what I wanted out of it okay. and decided I want to do property because, yeah. um, you know, because property has always been in the family as well in the UK, but, but in my head, I think it's because of this 
can women do better than men? Um, or, you know, can you can you be on the same playing field? I always saw it very separately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mindset's changed about that now, yeah. nowadays, since I've come back, you know, and, and so working with the family. Uh, so I always wanted to build my own first. Yeah. And I learned some great lessons from doing that. So initially, because I had a job, um, I was working and I could leverage my salary to get a mortgage out. So this is the most common way. In Dubai? In Dubai, where people can, how people can buy property even today, right? So you've got some sort of income, which is usually a salary. But in Dubai, so this is um, back then, so let's say 2011, um, I just, I bought like four properties and so leveraged off my salary, but they wouldn't count any other income, rental income in into your salary right. calculations. So it's just limited by whatever you're earning, whatever that would allow you to borrow, as opposed to your income you were earning from property as well. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in the UK, they look at all your income, don't they? So that was that was very interesting. So you're limited by your income, how much you could continue to purchase at that point. This is a big difference between being on a salary and having a business, yeah. right? Yeah. If it was a business, you could look at what the company, how it's, how that's, you know, what that's bringing in. Um, and I raised the deposits of some savings and uh, JVs with family and okay. friends, yeah. like close family and friends, yeah. to raise the initial deposit. But I ran into a problem when I was buying the fifth property, okay. which was off plan. So it was, um, and th- that was a bit, that was very embarrassing, actually, mm-hmm. because being a lawyer in Dubai, and I know how uh, the legal stuff works, yeah. and I did all the due diligence, it just shows you if someone or a company wants to get out and scam you is fairly easy yeah. as well, right? They can pull the wool over your eyes if they're determined. To yeah, they used a great law firm, uh, a very uh, well-known American law firm. I sort of knew, you know, some people there who represented them and everything checked out. There wasn't anything that didn't check out. Okay. But what happened was that uh, I brought off plan on a hotel off plan right. property in Jamaica Lake Towers, which is opposite the marina in Dubai. Yeah. Okay. And it was just, we were getting delays uh, quite a bit. And I, that's when I got concerned mm-hmm. about it. But the stories that came out of it was then really weird. So I decided, so I brought it for an agency and they had brought a whole floor right. themselves. So invest in a whole for floor. themselves or were they selling that floor? Um, I'm not too sure what they were doing with it, but I knew that they had invested in as well. But sometimes what will happen is the brokers yeah. commit to a floor and then go and sell that uh, yeah. those units. Yeah, that that's very normal in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And and for example, lease options in Dubai yeah. is something that you can actually buy as a product from the agencies as well. Right. So right. that was that's interesting. Um, but they didn't used to have it back then. Right. <laughs> yeah, it didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so uh, I decided not to go with the agency because they weren't sort of moving much in terms of. And I thought, oh, my issue might get lumped into their whole floor. Mm-hmm kind of negotiation so I didn't want that so I went and I took a really good friend of mine uh, who speaks Arabic to go and speak to them because they are mainly Arabic the the developer was from a I can't remember it was Bahraini or Kuwaiti family originally so we got there so it's all a little bit bizarre it's not like a first world setup where you might have a solid answer to something so what transpired from the office sort of manager was that um, uh, the, the son of uh, the father who owned the company had misused the funds. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, how is that even possible? Because back in Dubai, when you are developing um, developing a plot of land or a block of flats, mm-hmm. it needs to go into a sort of like an escrow account, which is yeah. 
uh, a government like protected. Yeah, but it's protected by the government so that the funds don't get released until you sort of reach another stage. Yeah, so, but that was very interesting because obviously this is all theory, <laughs> right? But in practice, I suppose people find loopholes around all yeah. of that. Just goes to show you could have a contract that's watertight. Yeah. If someone's determined to scam you, they could find a way yeah. to still to do and it. People decide to disappear as well back to their own country, right? Then what happens? Yeah. Yeah, decide not you, to. You pursue. Yeah, exactly. So I knew for a fact that I didn't want to go to court because I knew that um, it would have to go through the Dubai courts, which everything would need to be translated in, or everything would be in Arabic. So you'd have to hire an Arabic lawyer um, and then translate it back to English so I can actually understand what's happening. And because being in that sort of escalation world, that would have cost a bomb yeah. itself. So we went to negotiate. So I took my bestie along. And she um, she was very nice. It's a way to negotiate. It's a bit like a dance, right? Um, and I and without uh, so I said I didn't tell them I didn't want to go to court though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had to put a bit of pressure on. Yeah. But in the end, we came up with a really good result. Yep. So I got ninety percent of my money back. Okay. Had we not done that, I think it would have been a bit of a loss there, right. more of a loss. Ten percent went actually to line the pockets of the office manager. Right. So that was his sort of commission, as yeah. we put it, yeah. in a nice way. I, that that's like still a good result. I mean, that 10% was yeah. a lesson and a learning. Yeah, I took the hit for that 10%. But I would say that was quite a good result, right? And But it took a lot of... For someone who's not really been through a pro, like loads of problems at that point before yeah. in terms of... Because these things come up in business. Now it's... But the other four were smooth and then this one hit a... Yeah, so I actually would not buy off plan because of that experience ever again unless if it's in the middle east the developers emr okay yeah Not quite big, like them. big established developer yeah because okay. they've you know over time you've seen how they have been um you know with the different crashes covid 2008 crash. yeah and yeah. how they've handled these things um so so that was interesting okay but from that point on so i'm known much more for rent to rent especially service combination in the uk yeah but I actually started that in Dubai because after that experience, I was a, I was really put off buying anymore because yeah. you sort of lose a bit of confidence, yeah. right? Uh, and I didn't see that as a win then. Now I look back mm. and I think that was actually a win because yes. we were actually able to recover those yeah. funds. Didn't feel like a win at the time. No, I like at that point, I, I was so embarrassed because I think it was a bit of ego as well, right? And to be honest with you, it's just ego because I'm in the legal field working with one of the best law firms and... You know, I've, I I did my I know I did my best, but I still saw it as a loss then. Yeah. But now I really feel completely different about it. So mm -hmm. I would advise so many different things if I had to advise the Leslie back then. Yeah. Right to see how to see things a little bit differently. But it's a good thing that happened because had that not happened, I wouldn't have looked into creative ways to how else to earn money from property. Yeah. Yeah. And rent to rent, which is the sublease model. So you don't own the property that you earn money from. That's what attracted me um, to, go, to go and look at that avenue more. Okay. And in Dubai then, I tried to find support groups or property groups, you know, who were, you know, they were doing something different that I didn't know about. I was um, very, I was reading a lot of Robert Kiyosaki books because he was talking about all these different strategies that I've never, you know, never heard of. Mm -hmm. But I wondered where we could implement that in Dubai because obviously nobody was talking about yeah. these sort of strategies yeah. then. Um, and perhaps the, from what I understand, 
the information on how to go about doing these kind of rent, like the rent to rent strategy, Airbnb or share properties is still very limited for the Middle East, especially in Dubai market. There's not so much information. But I did find a group yeah. where um, we were paying a cash flow board game. Right. Uh, I think I was the only lady that attended. Oh, really? Yeah, most of the people were guys from sort of sort of Asian backgrounds. Yeah. yeah? But they were obviously very switched on uh, because they were they were running the subleasing strategy. Right. Yeah, and giving me some tips about it. Okay. Yeah, so that sort of opened up my mind to, oh, this is possible. Yeah. Yeah. But, and so I went ahead and got my first subleasing uh property okay there so what we would call as rent to rent here yeah okay so for rent to rent is when you rent a property from a landlord mm -hmm. yeah and then you go sublease it on yeah and it depends there's different rental models you can use yeah yeah but in dubai i did the share model so a share property model and it was very good i think i used to clear so just from the top of my head at least um at least two two grand net from wow. that model. Okay. So very quickly, I scaled yeah. up. Um, that's in uh, Sterling or? Um, in... It's in Sterling. Okay. Yeah. So roughly around a bit over 10,000 yeah. dirhams, right. so about 2,000. So like an average salary almost. Yeah. yeah. I scaled up to five. Fine. And then I, I, I left my job because I was sort of replaced yeah. the disposing salaries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I could replace my income from there and more. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then went on to invest in some different businesses in Dubai at that right. point. So that all happened around 2030 to 2016. Yeah. Um, and it was the properties that, pro although I went to open different businesses, so I, so I invested in a food and beverage um, a company, uh, uh, so and a uh, beauty salon right. and stuff. But all it, completely random and unrelated. It, yeah, it was a bit random because I was like, oh, better spread. You know, spread the eggs a little bit and my, and I learned so much, yeah. But ultimately, um, because of some personal issues, and I'm okay to talk about that, I had a few miscarriages after I got married in 2016. I decided to come back to the UK because I'd been away for so long at the end of 2018, yeah, and had to start from scratch again. Because of the laws in Dubai, I know that I knew that those rent-to-rent properties were only, I could only keep them for a certain time. Yeah. Yeah, now the laws have changed. Okay. Yeah, so there's ways around it now yeah. in Dubai. Yeah. Uh, so I ha had to build that property uh, income, let's say, from scratch. Right. Uh, 2018, um, you moved back to the uh, to the UK. Yeah, I moved back to the UK. I went on a few different courses to understand how what was going on in the UK, how the property market was working. My, my family live in Cambridge, and we have some properties and commercial properties as well. Uh, my dad was really against me, by the way, uh, doing rent to rent. He just, he was like, I don't understand why you're doing that. Why don't you go look at some bigger stuff, you know, do some more commercial stuff. Yeah. Um, but the reason for that is because I don't want to depend on my parents, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for the income. I, I knew that that strategy worked and it's a good basis to learn how to manage and control um, a business or your properties um, in the UK as a starting block. Uh, so my dad understood it afterwards, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where that thinking came from. And part of it was because they brought me up to earn my own money, right? Through my through a job or through my property ventures that um, I wanted to build that sort of cash flow foundation base first before we looked at some bigger stuff. Yeah, ultimately. they probably wanted you to put the money into assets, go and buy some property rather than why are you paying somebody rent? 
Yeah, and running around a lot, especially in the beginning. There's a lot of running around. Yeah, but there was a reason for it. So he understood it. It feel a bit like it's a, a managing agent, a letting agency type business where you're just managing somebody else's property. And to some extent you are, but you get paid really well for for that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I came back into the UK. So we started and... Um, I know, do you, I know a lot of people get their deals from agencies, mm. but apart from one, we got our deals direct to landlords. Right, okay. So a lot of working, a lot of networking, getting the word out, uh, meeting a lot of people, which was quite enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's, and then what happened, because we went from uh, six units to 12 units, okay. and then uh, at the moment we've got, I think, about 70 units. But what created that big jump was actually we we took over another agency's portfolio oh, okay. on a rent to rent. So they had quite a big portfolio, portfolio blocks of flats, HMOs, and then it kept growing. Uh, but then I put I put a cap on it because we had COVID, yeah. right? So COVID was um, a bit of a disaster mm-hmm. all around, though. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, all a lot of business was suffering at the time. Yeah, lots closed down, uh, lots of lots of business lost, but you've got in terms of lots of money lost mm-hmm. yeah we had a cancellation of at least 50 grand in one week when the news got mentioned in march yeah. and this was me preempting that there was going to be um ripple effect from wuhan and yeah. china just keeping up with the news yeah. of what's happened there but we didn't um we moved but it wasn't fast enough yeah. because we had so many anticipated a problem but not a wave that big yeah, where nobody could, you know, you nobody had that time. Yeah, but but you've got to be. The reason why we're still here um, is because we had to change change uh, how we do things. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, I think, that suffered buried their head in the sand a lot. Yeah. But I think you've got to be really proactive. Yeah. Do you keep your units? Do you or not? You have to negotiate with the landlords, right, and tell them what's going on and switch rental models. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And for us during uh, COVID. Um, we uh, our income literally just plummeted, and we, we weren't alone. Everybody was in the same. Uh, in the You've same got boat. different businesses as well, right? Yes. But it all went. Yes. So all the businesses <laughs> were kind of having their different challenges, and you think, okay, so how how do we fix this problem? And uh, luckily, in that business, I asked my uh, business partner started focusing on right. Where can we get NHS staff? Because they're the ones that are still out and about. Uh, they're still yeah. moving, and we managed to just keep the income going. We weren't making a huge amount of money. But what it meant was we could still sustain what we hadn't yeah. wired through through that period. So that that really helped us quite a lot. And then uh, um, once that all changed and we started to to slowly build it back up, we were just talking off camera now that um, the, the the SA model is very different now to say five six years ago. There's a how, how do you find that in Cambridge right now? Very competitive. And if I'm finding that in Cambridge, which is a very point and small a small market, I would yeah. say it must be even. Of a greater scale yeah. in Birmingham, for example, yeah. Yeah. it certainly is competitive without uh, without doubt. Yeah. yeah, but so if you're following the theme of this interview, and I'm sure if you're an entrepreneur, you've got to be flexible and yes. creative and find the niches. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I was off camera. We we're having a discussion about the market. So the Cambridge market is definitely much better than this year compared to last year. We were still suffering because China was still closed last year. So we weren't getting the influx from the Chinese visitors because yeah, they, yeah, because they, they only opened their doors recently. 
Okay. And I was reading a report that was issued, I think it was last year, uh, but it was for the universities. So there was a warning given that be brace yourselves because you're not going to be getting the same amount of students coming from China as you did in 2021. Okay. Yeah. Because their borders um, were not, they, they only started right. traveling yeah. earlier this year, opened yeah. their borders up to let people out. Okay. Yeah. That's, that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because you think that will now go back to normality, whatever, whatever normality was or? I think, I think. Uh, I wish it would go back to normality, but I'm always very cautious because no one could have predicted the COVID. Yeah. We've seen influx of uh, lots of students from India, by the way, okay. which yeah. has been, you know, uh, since the beginning of this year, we've been yeah. seeing that because of the housing accommodation requirements. Yeah. Have you seen that from on the on the ground? I'm, I'm probably a little bit detached from um, people that come and stay in our properties because the team... Yeah. They take care of that, so I'm often unaware who's actually uh, staying in our property. It's, uh, yeah, it's okay. We um, we usually don't have students in our properties, but mm. because of COVID, we've yeah. opened up all right. criteria. Okay. So we sort of entertain more and yeah. see, and as a result of that, see what the demands are in the market. Yeah, yeah so it's so been interesting. That's a, uh, it's an interesting um, uh, point that we, we're talking about uh, different nationalities and then earlier we were talking also uh, about Dubai and then kind of culture there. And um, so when we think about accommodation in Dubai, often it's super swanky, high-rise yeah. apartments with Burj Al Arab views or whatever. And that, that's the default view that we have <laughs> in our mind. But actually all accommodation isn't like that. It's, it's very different. Yes. Um, in Dubai, there are different tiers. So in Dubai, there's different... Um, can, how, how do I phrase this without sounding discriminative or should I just put it out there anyway because it, it is discriminative in yeah. Dubai yeah, yeah literally it is, it right. is. there is no other way to, yeah, to it describe it it depends uh, where you come from what yeah. passport you're holding yeah. yeah and depending on so what passport you hold by the way also would determine if you're going to work in Dubai your salary yeah yeah Yeah. so as a British passport holder yeah you're most likely to get a high paid salary. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody who probably has the same qualifications as you, yeah, uh, if they come from a different country, yeah. uh, such as Philippines, for example, yeah. they won't get offered the same yeah. amount. So they might be doing the same job. Yeah, same job. Same skill level. Yeah. They might even be better at than yeah. you at your job. Yeah. But because, but because of their passport, they'll automatically be given a lower salary, offered a lower salary. Yeah. When I went to Dubai, there wasn't anybody who was uh, Chinese okay. <laughs> looking. We had a lot of yeah. people from Philippines there who was working in the legal industry. Yeah. I always used to get asked, um, people used to ask me whether I, I was from the Philippines or as right. cabin crew was the, okay. the, 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 <laughs> the other one that I used to get yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah so, um, but it's just the way it is because um, although Dubai, you get, how it's presented and it is very luxurious you get like an amazing experience especially if you go on holiday there but there's a whole category of different um people and different sort of uh, wages or, or yeah. uh, classes that all coexist in that sort of um in that state yeah, yeah. so we we were talking earlier you, you have like the the super rich yeah. the in terms of earners. And so people can add to this, but I think there are four main categories. So you've got your uh, super, super rich, yeah, who they are owners of conglomerate, conglomerates or businesses, yeah. Then you've got those that come and they are wealthy expats and they they get, you know, they don't pay taxes on their 
salary there so they you know they could save a lot high earn like, professional high earners yeah. yeah for example my boss yeah. like he used to have a collection of um supercars okay yeah and uh the partners in law firms like everybody was driving a ferrari they used to rock up at work it was quite cool their bentley's and you know, other cool cars uh so that was a big thing mm-hmm. um and then you'd have the category where they um would be earning quite well, mm-hmm. yeah, but um, maybe it's because of their nationality. Right. So it's uh, not that standard, but it depends yeah. how they utilize their money. Sort of in that sort of, I would say, 5,000 dirham to 10,000 dirham, so 1 to 2,000 pounds sort yeah. of range, yeah. And then you have those under the 5,000 dirham range, which is people that work in the service industry a bit okay. more. Um, so it could be beauticians or people who work at the hotel, yeah. etc. Yeah, so you get this sort of restaurants, cleaners, yeah, you know, these kind of a yeah, unskilled work. They all need somewhere to live. Yeah, yeah, and um, and there are people that live um, let's say, not the first two categories, but the the uh, last two, where they can't pay their rent. So in Dubai, um, often the rent is paid in one to four checks. Yeah, and depending on if you want to pay in one check. You can negotiate a slightly lower rent. Yeah, yeah. It's like an annual advance rent. Yeah, so you pay that in advance. Yeah, um, and but those people on you know who are probably more uh, a bit more cautious of their money as well, or the slightly lower income, they need to have a monthly yeah. uh, rental. So there's a massive demand there. Okay. Yeah. So this is like entry level accommodation. We don't really think about. There's actually quite a big demand for that type of accommodation. Yes, and. As well. So that's there's something there. There's a massive demand, but not enough supply. And the reason there's not enough supply is because of the regulations in Dubai. Yeah. Yeah. The the laws have changed a little bit now. So when I was uh, living in Dubai, you couldn't um, you couldn't ha- live with your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You'd have to be married to yeah. technically live together. Now you, but that happens anyway. But it would only become a problem if somebody reported you, or for some reason you fell out. Okay. You know. So, you know, there was There's no real enforcement unless somebody. Uh, or, yeah, unless it was a malicious or, report yeah. or for some reason the police, you know, wanted to, to you know, um, get something on you. So that would um, usually wouldn't have a problem because there would be people who are expats who were, you know, sharing a, a flat together. Yeah. Um, but there was, a, as we said, a massive demand in the lower categories. And in Dubai, technically speaking, uh, you're not allowed to um, have share of properties. However, they... so these are like HMOs, effectively. Yeah, HMOs. Yeah. yeah, because there's not a regulated space. But I hope that it will be regulated at some point because of the demand. But what's ended up happening, so in the sort of older Dubai, yeah, is that you will get properties where people are doing sharing. But there's absolutely a problem with overcrowding because mm-hmm. uh, it could be like loads of bunk beds or people may partition within right. rooms and um, and living rooms as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not very safe, but that's how they survive. Yes. Yeah. Very substandard accommodation, but it exists yeah. in the same city, which is uh, all glitz and gold. Yeah. So that, that it's quite interesting, though, because you have that as well. Uh, whereas then you've mm-hmm. got the, the you know wealthy expats and super rich that are operating at a completely different level. Yes, um, we we've opened the topic of Dubai, so just uh, following, oh, yeah, following, yeah. following that theme. Um, so you lived there for about ten years. Uh, you're in the uh, the legal industry there. How have you seen the property market change or evolve during that time from what what were what it was then to just before you left? Dubai is very interesting. 
<clears throat> so with Dubai, I think you've just got to remember, I think the rulers or the people that control the state, they are very clever. They're very clever because they're always trying to attract uh, people's money to come yeah. into the country or companies to bring their money into the country. Um, so in that sense, it's never going to be too dry, if that makes sense. So Dubai is very interesting. Um, and there will always be something. So when I was there, there was the Expo 2020, which they made a bid for and they won that. I think that brought a lot of, um, they were able to recover from COVID quite quick because okay. that they had the Expo after the COVID. Um, so it's very interesting. And I think, but the problem is that Dubai seems to go through this cycle of a 10-year crash. And when it crashes, it crashes. Yeah. So I've never seen, a, so but I was- it's not really a slowdown when it falls, it falls on its face. Yeah, so back in 2000, I went to Dubai in 2009, right at the beginning, and it was, it, it took a little bit of time to uh, have the ripple effect from the rest of the world who were crashing in 2008, right? Um, but literally, I was telling you, I saw abandoned cars uh, all on the street. So there's a very busy road, the Sheikh Side Road, right? Which is the, the, the road that has like so many lanes on both sides that goes from one end of Dubai all the way to Abu Dhabi. So that was empty. <laughs> so imagine that. So I remember driving down there and, you know, there were empty uh, buildings that were not complete. Right. Yeah. And lots of abandoned cars everywhere. And it was just empty. And I remember, yeah. dry, uh, you know, going so through that is, period. And the reason for this was where people couldn't pay their debts. And if you yes. bounce a check at that point, yeah. you could end up in prison if you can't yeah. pay your debts. So people just abandoned the country and just... Yeah, so a lot of expats, yep. And Dubai was, you know, they were going up and up and up at that point as well. So they all brought properties uh, or they got a loan out. They might have a car loan, um, credit card. You know, it's very easy to get financing in Dubai if you have a job. Very easy, yeah. You get personal loan out or a mortgage. So once they lost their jobs, because the jobs were going, um, they had to flee the country, literally, mm -hmm. because if... Um, at that point, the laws were if you're if you're if you can pay your debts, so you would need to give a check right. to the bank, um, which they would leave blank, yeah. and um, they would then cash it in if you were not making your your instalment payments. Right. Yeah, and that would leave the check to bounce, which would be a that's a criminal offence part. Yeah, right. And then you could end up in jail because of that, because sometimes the police just spot checks. Yeah, and if you end up on that list, yeah, they'll put you into jail. So. During a recession in Dubai, there's sort of like a little joke, but there's a lot of business people behind bars, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. So with the way things are in Dubai at the moment, it seems it's booming. It's uh, uh, It seems to be property-wise. They're just building so much, but they're still selling so much as well. What's your What's your take and view on uh, on where it's going? There will there's bound to be a crash at some point because it always happens in Dubai. Mm -hmm. But I think it just depends how, when it's going to happen. So it's going to be very interesting. So I predict that the UK is going to go for a bit of a crash mm -hmm. this year, next year, because at the moment we're seeing the mortgage rates going so high. Yeah. And those that are going to be impacted the most are the landlords that are not on a fixed rate. Yeah. Because even if they, because it might be they just come up for a renewal on a fixed period, but if they can't make their cash flow, so their rentals work, mm -hmm. um, either they're going to default on their payment or they're going to end up selling. Yeah. But the problem that we know is that if there's a lot of stock that comes onto the market, if people are struggling to get a good mortgage rate, the mortgage activity is going to come to a bit of a halt, right? 
So that will end up um, bringing on a property crash. Yes, so you'll have an excess supply and not enough demand to take up the yeah. supply. Um, but obviously, if you're positioning yourself for a crash, i.e. you've built up some cash reserves, it's a great time to get in to negotiate some good deals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we're certainly in for some interesting times. Just earlier, I caught a snippet on the uh, uh, on the news that uh, the the standard rate for a home purchase at the moment is six point six percent on a mortgage. Uh, absolutely, the highest it's been for fifteen years. And when I first got starting property about seventeen years ago, a couple of years I kind of struggled to get started. But then I really picked up momentum when the market crashed because I was just stumbling over deals every day. I was sourcing property to to sell on to other people, um, and that that's where I uh, had really learnt the property market understood motivated sellers understood that market did lots of uh, deals during that time and then also creative stuff like lease options went on to do quite a lot of those then the market started changing 12 13 14 by about 2015 16 we were doing very little of that kind of stuff because there was um the prices were rising sellers weren't as motivated there were fewer motivated sellers around all our marketing activity was not performing as well and I think right now that the time that we're in at the moment is probably the first time since I've been in this industry that we've started to see lots of motivated sellers again. So just this week, we were talking earlier, just this uh, uh, yeah. current week, uh, weekend, I was running a, a workshop uh, on deal finding and we we're negotiating deals directly with vendors. We'd already done the marketing, we generated the leads direct from the sellers, having conversation, but negotiated 20, 30, 40, even 50,000 pound discounts off those prices wow. what they're doing there which was even last yeah. year would have been unheard of yeah you couldn't yeah. And, yeah. I, and i think this will probably last for maybe a couple of years so i i 100 agree there is a window of opportunity right now yeah so we'll have that here how many years do you think this will go on for my guess is about two years yeah same yeah um so let's see how it impact dubai yeah. dubai is booming at the moment yeah the reason that there's Loads of people bring their money in from Russia. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, literally, I've got a few friends there that have sold their properties to Russian. Yeah. Uh, Russian buyers. Yeah. And some of that, sorry to interrupt you, some of that would be like Russian money is not so popular in the UK right now. Yeah. Places like this. Yeah. So the Russians say, "Oh, that's fine. We'll take our money where it's a uh, where it's a." Uh, yeah. Hence the owner of wealth. the uh, football club, the one yeah. that was at Chelsea. Uh, Here's a Russian. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I, I know what you mean. I'm not a big yeah, fan yeah. of uh, football generally, but I know. Yeah, yeah. Abramovich. So, yeah, that's it. Um, so he took his, he sold his shares, right? He took mm -hmm. his money out of the UK, essentially, in case um, it got frozen for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Well, because of the politics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Dubai is a very popular place for countries that have um, political issues yes. at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I was in Istanbul a few weeks ago. And there's a very similar conversations there with the property people. There's a lot of Russian money coming into uh, into Turkey, yeah. um, because the the money's there. They'll just find other places for it. Um, so we were saying about the uh, the market and slowdown and what we think will happen in Dubai. Yeah, so I think it's quite hard to say when there's going to be another crash because if it's getting, you know, the money in from different countries, I think unless the the conflicts stop. Right, which it might do depending on the American election, I think, mm. right? Yeah, because, um, well, I don't know how that's going to go, but we won't go into it. Yeah. But if they could pacify the conflict between the Russian and Ukrainian war, I think that's when we'll probably see a bit more of a stop. Yeah. However, going on to that subject, there would be a massive opportunity in both countries, mm. if you're a business person, to even help the economy there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So would you see yourself going back to do property in Dubai? Because you, you still are doing some property in Dubai. It's not that you've sold off everything and gone. Yeah, so we've got some rent to rents and Airbnbs, and we've we sold not we sold. We've got a few properties there yeah. still. So you still run an Airbnb model, yeah. service accommodation model in Dubai remotely from here. Yeah, but with caution. Okay. But with caution, only because I see. So at the beginning of this year, I was like, "Yeah, our property's doing really well. Let's just go all guns blazing in Dubai." Mm-hmm. But I have put a little bit of a halt on that, okay. and the reason is because I think the opportunity is actually in the UK. You don't want to go to a country where it's booming yeah. to, you know, be investing at that top of that sort of rise. I'm waiting for it to crash. Yeah. So to then invest in if you if you're going to buy. So I'm just at the moment just waiting. And the market's always changing and evolving, and we we have to be mindful of that. That we just don't get completely oblivious to what's going on around us, and things could be falling around and collapsing. We think, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all fine. It's all fine. We need to be aware of the changes and yeah. that might impact us. But, but it's not, right? So I, I actually perfectly understand where my USP or as a family group, where our USP is, is actually making the cash flow work yes. during bad times or having a look at different niches. Yeah. Because it's all right buying property, isn't it? But it takes a while. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Whether you're getting a mortgage or not. Uh, but to make it, so make that monthly cash flow work is a different is a different ball game. It's running a business. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of uh, cash flow. That's kind yeah. of the core thing yeah. that we need to get right in property. And sometimes people don't treat property as a business, um, but the reality is a business, and we need to manage those books well to make sure that cash flow works well. Yeah, one of the reasons why I like service the accommodation or service apartments or even contractor bookings or working with companies is I like um, to see not a monthly cash flow but daily. Yes. Yeah, daily, weekly. So you've got to be on the pulse of, yes. of that. You can't, I, I don't think you should ever always completely go 100% with a traditional model. Mm-hmm. Got to get active, you know, get business in. Yeah. Yeah. And based in Cambridge, where the, the values are super high, it's a nice affluent area. How do you make property work when the when the prices are so high and you get a cop? You get this also in London when people are surrounded by very expensive property thing. How do you get started? How do you get cash flow going in a place like that? Rent to rent is the best place to start. So um, that's because you don't need to buy a, the property, which will cost you at least half a million, right, to get started. For And it probably by the time you do purchase a half a million property, the cash flow doesn't look as good because you've invested quite a lot in. Yes. So hone, um, you need to hone your skills on, you know, start with one property. If you get a landlord to agree, you could do a subleasing model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's the HMO model yeah. or it's uh, one where you do a, you get daily you know money in from yeah. for example service accommodation yeah. Airbnb, but you need to start working on how you control mm-hmm. the finances. And we had to is a big so whistle here so it means that we learned a big lesson over COVID. So how you control what's going out and versus what's coming in, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't work for everyone. Like um, I, I was telling you off camera, we've had some properties that we've had to take back yeah. where we actually rented those properties out to a rent to rent operator. Yeah. So just to give some context to that. Yeah. So this is where you uh, either own the property or you've rented it from another landlord. Yeah. And then you then set, uh, pass it out to another rent to renter yeah. to take from you, sit in the middle to, yeah. to create profit. And they've struggled to, to meet their commitment. So you've taken the property back. Yeah. So it's very important that you take. Um, so let's just go back a little bit to explain that scenario a little bit better. So maybe we make a little bit of a rental premium. 
from uh, the rent that we pay the landlord yeah. and the rent to rent operator, i.e. a corporate. Yeah. We, I classify that as a corporate let, yeah? And they've used the property to then go, for example, and to run their Airbnb or service accommodation business from. But for but yeah, but they for some reason they struggled or they've not been able. So I would have expected to be honest, it's it's quite interesting for them to come back and renegotiate a little bit yeah. on the rent or something. But it's literally for one of them, it's just been no contact. Right, bury the head in the sand. But yeah, and that was that's been interesting. So if you are watching this podcast, I'm still open to having a conversation with you. We would had to take those properties back when that problems okay. arisen very quickly. Yeah. So within fourteen days. Yeah. And your contract allows such that it allows you to just take control back over that yeah. if you're not being paid. So that's very important mm. when you do um if you're running this model with a company like that you can also get access. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the beauties of it really. Yeah. Um so you don't lose money. Yeah, or because you still have a deposit that you can offset. Yeah. Yeah. Or you have if or if you don't have a deposit, you've got the furniture. Yeah. Yeah. To go and listen. listen yeah. I, I remember during COVID when we started getting the NHS model starting to work well for us, we were actually taking on other rent to renters properties who were struggling to meet their yes. commitments. So we said, okay, well, we'll take that on because now we're now starting to build up a demand from this sector here. Now we don't have enough accommodation to provide them. But also very cautiously, the way we set up the contract is we could exit out on quickly. Yeah. Because we didn't know how long this was going to run for. So I would guess something to ask you, because it's the same spirit that we're operating yeah. in. How did you get your NHS contacts? What did yeah. you do that was different for everyone else? Yeah, I think IDAS was very proactive in the team. He was like, okay, um, right now what we're seeing is uh, medical staff, hospital staff, NHS staff, they, they are moving around. Some of them need accommodation staying. Some, for example, doctors are not going back to their families because they've been exposed yeah. in um, yeah. the hospitals to potentially risk. So they need to stay in isolation. Um, so it was then it was just lots and lots of calls of how can we tap into who makes the decisions of where people stay. And I think that's what it was. It's just really rather than saying, okay, what can we do? It was being proactive. What what do we need to do to find the contacts that will help us yeah. get some of that business in? And once you find... Uh, a little vein uh, uh, um, and you find uh, a way in, then that person could introduce it to somebody else and that person might connect with somebody else and it just makes it much easier once you get your foot in the door, as it were. Brilliant. I've got a question for you, actually. Did you have any issues with payment or is it um, if it was from the NHS? Yeah, I think I think we... Some of the payments were a bit slow, if I remember, um, but it wasn't a major problem they were, that we were being uh, paid. But that is actually a big risk. It's a, an important point you highlight because if your dependency is on one provider paying you and they hold payment back, that could have a massive cash flow impact in terms of what you're what you're doing. Yeah. So I think the main thing is don't bury your head in the sand. We have mm. a problem. You've got to tackle it head on. Yeah. But it can be daunting. Yeah. So I would say for those that have suffered during COVID time and as a result, there was repercussions, right? Hasn't been last year was still tough, yeah. right? Um, don't worry, just get back into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why do you think there are some operators now starting to struggle? I um, there's competition, okay, yeah. and if they were operate new competition, yes. yeah, so, so not just people, people coming into the marketplace with more properties, so yeah. there's more supply. More supply, landlords where the single act model is not working for them, or they're not the HMO model is not yeah. working. They see Airbnb as the next best that's thing, right? Yep, so, yeah, so a lot of transition over from that model, but they will suffer as well yeah. because 
you know, you've got to find the niches in yeah. within the niche, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, reminds me of when, uh, when, when I first started, uh, we would see uh, buy-to-let landlords, some of them starting to struggle a little bit. Mm. And there were there was this, for a year or two, there was this big shift to everyone's turning the housing to HMOs because yeah. there's going to be more money in HMOs. That will save us. And now it seems to be a similar thing to service accommodation. Yeah. Or people are thinking, actually, we can go short stay, Airbnb, uh, you know, service accommodation yeah. to generate more income. But then you're oversupplying the market. Yeah. Those that do well operate the model a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. And this is just, you know, you think outside the box. So I know of um, a successful operator. So they, got, they do HMOs, mm-hmm. but they leave one room where they run short-term rentals from. Okay. Yeah, and then I was like, "How does that work?" Because doesn't um, d- you know? Because from experience, yeah, um, your long-term tenants don't they get annoyed with that yeah. person who's coming in? Someone's going to go in a suitcase all the time. Yeah, and they're using everybody's things, yeah. you know. So what they do is that they put a minimum stay of thirty days. Yeah, so they tend to get actually yeah. as a couple of months. Right. So, so they're doing almost like a one-month contract. Yeah, so it's a little bit more better. And that seems to work for them quite well. So they've, uh, yeah, so it's just like being creative, right? Yeah. Um, so armed with this, and I would say a lot of people, and correct me if I'm wrong, Saj, I would say if you're doing rent to an HMOs, you might be suffering a little bit now if you are if you are just profiting from that one room. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I've never been a big fan of four-bed HMOs because uh, I think you barely make money on four. It's five, six, and seven, where which tend to be really profitable. Uh, and beyond that, I think it's a completely different model than um, in terms of the number of people in shared accommodation. So that, I think the sweet spot is six and seven. For, yeah. That's what we like. But to answer your question about uh, it changing, so we've we've got a, a number of uh, rent-to-rents that are now coming to an end this year that we've had for a long time. Because I, I did a lot of seven, ten-year type deals as well. Amazing. Um, I didn't know they existed, by the way, yeah. until recently. Oh, long, long could, lease. Yeah, such a long lease. Yeah. I remember one of my lease options was 21 years. Oh, wow. So a lot of them are lease options. No, these these are just standard oh, rent rent. Okay. I remember a lease option I did. That was the first one I did that long, I think. 21 years, that's a long time. Yeah. The intention was never to keep it that yeah. long. It was just if we've got it for that period, we can decide what to do. And with these rent to rent, some like seven years, 10 years, uh, and we spent a fair bit of money on them, uh, which also, when I explained that, some people sounds a little bit crazy. You spent 20 grand on somebody else's house. Yeah, but I'm making 10 grand a year for 10 years. Um, yeah. But now what's happened is the the rents recently have increased so much yeah. that the landlord's saying, nah, we're, we're, this is what I want. And at that point, it's yeah. just not viable for us. So we'll return those. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, we were paying like 850 pounds and now the, the rent is like 14 or 1500 pounds. That's just wiped out our margin if we yeah. pay the higher amount. So we'll just hand those properties back. Yeah. I, we will actually have a chat. I won't disclose this other um, model that I'm working yes. on because maybe that the might be another. strategy. Yeah, that might be. This is the HMO. Yeah. yeah, test it first. There might be another conversation yeah. we're yeah. having. But I don't think uh, it works because you're just, as a rent-to-rent HMO uh, operator, you're taking on a lot of risk, right? Uh, especially with the increase of the bills, yeah, the energy bills, yeah. we would say it's tripled in yeah. some cases. And then if one reason, one one room doesn't pay their rent yeah. because they've lost their job or they're just being yeah. cheeky, then you're wiped out, right? Profit's gone. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bit risky. Yeah. Yes, you yeah. have to be have to be careful. And I, um, in the early days, what I saw happen with rent to rent is, you see, lots of people want to try to do it. A lot of people would give up because getting that first deal often is, is hard and many people give up before they get the first one. 
Those that get the first one and go on to do two or three, some of those would then just accelerate very quickly. And before you know it, they've got 10, 12, 15 units. I think, hang on a minute, it was only six months ago you had one. So you haven't really been through a full cycle and all of a sudden you've got this huge portfolio. Oh, yeah. And the risk is just explodes. Uh, and unfortunately, many of those have just gone on to fall over because they haven't understood the growth. Yeah, and the manage and the systems you've got to put in place. Yeah. So we were talking about when all the rent's collected, when yeah. it gets dispersed to landlords and other outgoings yeah. as well. There has to be a bit of a plan. Managing that there. cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of it you can only learn also for experience. Yes, by doing. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much you can learn in theory. I was having a conversation with somebody else recently about, you know, back in the early days. I keep saying the early days like I'm some kind of old man. I'm not that old, really. Uh, you're um, a bit younger as well. <laughs> take that. Um, what would happen is we'd really struggle to get information and find out how something works. So uh, people would talk to me about nominee down. I think, what is that? How does that work? How do you do it? And it would be really difficult to get that information. There were maybe four or five networking events in the whole country. Now there's literally that in every town or city. Yeah. So yeah. information was the challenge. But we've gone from that to the other extreme of there's information overload. Overload, yeah. So much information out there. It's almost like confusing of, uh, you know, you've got 20 people giving you their version of how something works and you think, okay, what's the correct version? How does it work? Sometimes you just got to go and find it yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the learning is in the doing. You've got to go yeah. out and start to implement. And then there's so much more you'll learn by going through that process. Yeah, agree. So tell me, we've been talking a lot about controlling property, rent to rent, service accommodation overseas. Uh, when did you first start buying property? When did you first start owning property? So back in Dubai, that's when I started. And in the UK, when I came back. Okay. Yeah. So, but, so how my mindset's changed is before when I, uh, I came back, I still had a bit with my family, like, oh, I want to build up my own and then show them the results. Yeah. But actually it's easier when you can leverage off your family stuff. And we're a close family anyway. Yeah. So as a family, our property portfolio is probably about 6 million. Okay. Yeah, around that mark. But yeah. I've come to that stage where I've like, we don't really need to add to it anymore. Because yeah. to be honest, we, everyone can live very yeah. comfortably off that. And there are some properties that are lined up in terms of if we have an emergency, we could just sell those, yes. right? And then there are those that we will never sell because yeah. it's part of mum and dad's legacy or history or there's some sort of history behind yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, but but I think um, I'm not, I was going to buy quite a few properties last year. So I, it there was about six million pounds worth of deals in a pipeline, okay. including some blocks of flats. Yes, I remember um, speaking last year about yeah. yeah, guest houses and some land, yeah. but then I pulled the rug on it at the end right. of last year. So we withdrew all the offers, yeah. mainly because when you know you're going into a recession of some yeah. sort and where the interest rates are basically, yes. you know, dotting yeah. around, um, mm. from my experience, from managing our family stuff, and the main one was actually a development, um, an office to flat conversion okay. that we did. Uh, well, my, my my family did, but they'd run into trouble. So I was I was working to buy them. Yeah. I had to salvage that, right? Um, that project. Yeah. Um, but that basically uh, led me to understand how risky it is. Yeah. Yeah. To be in that position, like yeah. over leverage yourself when you're going for a recession. So what happened there, Saj? So this is an interesting uh, experience, which is so I. This is before I got into property in Dubai even. Mm -hmm. So uh, parents were doing this uh, conversion. And my brother, who was literally, he had one year's experience in architect's firm, was sort of project managing that. Mm -hmm. 
but I had no idea what a development loan was then either. So Lloyds Bank was sponsoring, not sponsoring, they were financing the build and it just went really wrong. So we worked with a family's friend's construction company, Mm -hmm. but they didn't do things properly. Right. So we had no building regs in place. Uh, So work stopped and there was a lot of cowboy work going on. But as you know, it's very hard for an incoming company to then take over works because we had a lot of, the walls that were sealed, but the yeah. pipes behind it weren't connected. Yeah. There's a lot of unforeseen. We don't know um, what the 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 quality of that work is. It's going to be easy for somebody else to pick it up, yeah. or they're going to have to unravel quite a lot of things. Yeah. So 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 I remember coming home for Christmas that year, and then some sort of survey came through the post, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What is this?" Yeah. And it was a survey that Lloyd's Bank had uh, made uh, my family get to see work. Okay. Where, what stage we're up they, to with the work, yeah. the status, right? So I took that and basically had to run with it because it had gone to Lloyd's Bank sort of um, a repossessions team right. at that point. So They were not happy about what was happening. No. So and at that point, I was I was still thinking, what? I don't understand why we've signed up for this 12-month loan. I didn't understand it then. I was like, why are we not on a normal mortgage where, you know, it's for a, a long-term product? Yeah. I didn't understand it then. And so I got on board and this is when you use your skills, right? Mm-hmm. So I use the skills I learned from the law firm when we are managing a case, for example. So I put together a, a, um, a, a, a table yeah. of action plans yeah. yeah, and the action plans had deadlines on. Right. So I spoke with the bank manager, I had a conversation that I'm on board now and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. yeah. And um, so that was a massive learning curve. So I had to line up with the help of the coordination of my family on the ground in Cambridge, uh, se- separate contractors for mm. each bit of work because it was difficult to get somebody in to look after the whole thing because we had to redo. So there were, you know, I remember we kept failing the acoustic test at one point right, yeah. and trying to find solutions, i.e. Yeah, carpet. That can be a real pain in the backside because you yeah. don't know where that problem could have occurred. Yeah, but I think it was a good learning curve, you know, because that table of yeah. works of, you know, I, uh, but anyway, so what happened, I had to end up getting a another bridge so it was a very expensive lesson. Yes. Otherwise, um, there was only a certain amount of time that Lloyds Bank would extend that. So uh, that to replace the Lloyds line? Yeah, as a Shawbrook's bank okay. came into place. So it was the first time we encountered a commercial yes. lender, such right. as Shawbrook's. So managed to get a bridging another bridging loan and then exit off a long-term loan. Right. But we, I, I remember thinking, it wasn't just a working ball. My, my parents really suffered during that time and my brother did as well their mental health and well-being it can be very very stressful yeah because before i got involved i remember my mum was borrowing some money off her friends and mm. she didn't, i didn't like her to be in that position where she had to borrow money off people mm. 10 grand here 20 grand here because of what was going on yes. yeah i didn't, didn't ever want them to be in that yeah. position and it caused my brother who was still very young at that point lots of stress i mean he went through a little bit of you know uh depression or burying his head in the sand yeah and i think to be honest i I was a little bit mean to everyone then. I was literally like making them yeah. doing stuff, yeah. you know, trying to make sure it's all done. So it's a lot of, it was teamwork, but it was yeah. really hard. And, and yeah. I don't want to put my family through that. But sometimes, again. as you highlighted earlier, it's very easy for someone to bury their head in the sand at that point and say, you know, hopefully we'll go away. It won't go away. We have to take responsibility. And that's what you you did. You took responsibility. So, okay, how can we find a solution to this? Yeah, so my my uh, viewpoint was I never want my family to suffer again mm-hmm. during a time of recession. 
uh, where things are so tied that we, because the thing was, it wasn't about it, losing that building would have been very painful for us because it was, I think, the first building my right. my dad brought. Okay. Yeah. So it's the first building he actually had his restaurant, which right. now has uh, another tenant in. So we don't right. run the business anymore. Yeah. So that's one of those buildings you never would want to sell, you want to keep in the. Yeah, because there's been a history behind it because he actually. Um, he sold his lease before he owned it. Okay. Uh, so we we're running a restaurant to an Indian restaurant. Okay. And he actually had a had a legal battle with his landlord, right. who uh, just didn't want an Indian restaurant to operate okay. there. Right. Right. But he came out of that mm-hmm. off telling the landlord, uh, give him the option that he was going to buy. Yeah. Yeah. The whole building. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. like it, you know, so it was a lot of negotiation there. So it was very interesting because yeah. we had different nationalities. The landlord was a, a, some, a, a Jewish uh, landlord okay. who had lots of properties um, in London as yeah. well. So <laughs> there was a whole process There's to cultural it. Cultural challenges there as well, though, in answer. Yeah. So, and lots of uh, thinking that yeah. went behind it. So that would have been very difficult. And it was also um, that restaurant that we slept there in the right. basement when we were right. very, very poor before dad built his property yeah. empire so that we would have been devastated on more of a personal level if we anything happened to it but emotional connection with that building yeah and that is something that you know this property will pass down yeah. to our um, next generations and they won't be allowed to sell it no yeah yeah that sounds a bit mean the next generation it, little tales yeah. yeah so our portfolio consists of other properties that if they ever run into trouble yeah use those properties sell them but these ones have a story behind it which yeah is the foundation of our family roots in the UK. Yes, it means a lot. Yeah, do you have anything like that in your family? No, we were, we were never really uh, from a property background. Actually, having said that, you said something interesting earlier, made me think about grandparents. So my grandfather, from my father's side, um, uh, and the family, they, they had a lot of land in Pakistan, but uh, the government decided to build a, a dam uh, there at that time, and all that land was taken as a compulsive purchase order, if you like, oh, and offering little pittance. But now when we look back, that land was enormous in size and in value. And that's where the then the immigration started, where uh, my father and his brothers and the uh, extended family moved mm-hmm. to the UK to set roots here. But my father fell ill when I was probably about eight or nine years old. His uh, kidneys fell. So he was quite ill. He was quite ill for a long time. And my mother was a full-time carer. Being the only son, um, uh, you kind of feel a bit pressure. I probably grew up a little bit quicker. But actually, that's what really created the hunger inside me that, you know, like yourself, he's saying, Actually, I don't want to be in a position where we're poor, we can't afford anything. You know, there must be a way. How can we? And I think that that hunger's always stayed inside me. Same. I don't think it ever goes away, really, because I think it's just the way we're wired, yes. right, potentially, as in, okay, the government's confiscated yeah. all this land that we used to own, but there's nothing we can change yeah. about history. Uh, so what can I do to fulfill yeah. that yeah. longing for that such a waste and such a pity? Yeah. What can we do now to make a difference about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Armed with uh, yeah. the skills, the internet, you yeah. know. Absolutely. As long as you're not lazy, I think you could do most things. Yeah. We're, we're all blessed with the same 24 hours at the end of the day. It's what we choose to do with them that's important. Yeah. So Leslie, just before we, we finish then, what uh, what is next for you? What do you see for the next few years for you and your business? Um, I think I'm going to keep, not that I think I know, we're going to keep building on that cash flow, whether it's through uh, property yes. or other businesses. Yeah. So I'm looking to acquire, as you yeah. know, some yeah, different businesses. That, yeah, yeah um, and the reason for that is because, yes, we can always park our money into property, 
but that cash flow, that daily, that monthly money coming in, um, the I feel more stable when I yeah. see a good chunk yeah. come in and we're able, we, we've sort of not mastered, but I would say we have a pretty good control yeah. now over, you know, how to manage your cash flow and businesses. And I think there's no point always earning lots and lots and lots of money if you can't keep it as well, right? Or allocate it safely elsewhere. So there's also dangers to growing too fast. But I think that after going through all of that and, you know, earning money in different countries, I think we're positioned. And just to let everybody know, it's not just me that's doing everything. There's yes. There's a family roots, a family team there that are behind, yeah, supporting and helping. Family business. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure spending this time with you and having a conversation with you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you.